Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Neela Graham about helping puppies start life on the right paw. Dr. Graham is a veterinarian with over 10 years' experience in practices all over the world. She has always had a strong interest in brain function, emotions, behaviour and neuroplasticity, which led her to seeking further knowledge in these areas. Naila has been working with veterinary behaviour specialists and senior mentors to become more knowledgeable in the field of animal behaviour and now proudly runs her own behaviour and training business, called Calm Companions on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Hello, Neela, and thank you so much for joining us on the Pure Animal Podcast. I'm so excited to have you. We've um, we've taken a little time to, to lock this in, so I'm really yes, excited. Yes. Talk all no, about puppies. Too. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, Neela, so we're going to be talking all about puppies today, which is a, a pretty nice topic to, to start the day off for, for, for me and probably for you as well. But, yes, absolutely. <laughs> but before we get into it, I just was wondering if you're able to share your background with us um, including, you know, what made you want to be a vet originally and how you ended up working in the field of behaviour? Yeah, absolutely, Sarah. So, um, look, I've been a vet, I think now, gosh, 10, 11 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I've wanted to be a vet ever since I was, you know, a kid. Yeah. Um, so passion's always been there. And I have always had an interest in psychiatry, psychology, human-wise yep. and animal-wise. Um, I was uh, nervous about the, um, uh, the the human aspect of uh, going into medical uh, work to do psychology and psychiatry, but um, ended up obviously in the veterinary um, realm. And now I can help both dogs and their owners, which yeah. is a double benefit which I really love. Yeah, absolutely. And it's mm, a, it's so, a lot more about the humans than we sort of think oh, at uni, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it absolutely is and I think there's a there's a big gap of um uh, psychology education or human psychology education in our veterinary um uh, veterinary um undergraduate degrees um, uh, or postgraduate and postgraduate degrees realistically, um, I think there's a big gap there that we need to understand a lot more about psychology in general, which, you know, humans and animals, um, humans are animals, we are animals too. Uh, We're primates, obviously not, and then we deal with canines. So, I mean, uh, primal brains are very, very much similar. So um, there's a lot that that we can benefit from understanding psychology. And I, I just love it. I've uh, definitely found my uh, my passion and my purpose in life. Oh, that's so, wonderful. Uh, yeah, no, I've been inspired by some amazing um, vets. Dr. Gail Perry has been my mentor um, yeah. for the last four or five years, uh, and um, Dr. Andrew Shea and Kirsty Sexall. Um, yeah. There's many um, uh, Dr. Sarah Heath from the UK, um, and many other people who have seen and learnt from. So, um, so yeah, no, it's been an amazing journey. Oh, and and something that's just starting out for you is that you've you've started your own behaviour clinic, haven't you, on the Gold yeah. Coast? Oh, we have. Yes. So, yeah. tell um, us about that. Uh, <laughs> Yes, yeah, so uh, I've been doing mobile vet behaviour 
um, consults at people's homes um, for the last, uh, well, since 2014. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, then uh, I was finding that I I just, I needed this, I needed a location um, to be able to do more practical stuff and and also um, more um, uh, structured Mm -hmm. uh, environment so that I could um, compare animals in a specific environment, um, say before treatment and after treatment or before yeah. assessment and after assessment. So um, it was really nice to be able to find the location that we have. Uh, and it's exciting because I was able to design it um, uh, with with view of behaviour and low-stress handling and low-stress um, uh, environment for the pets and for the owners. So I've got a nice space, which is really exciting because Yeah, now I can um, do both house visits and this is what I do currently. We do split it. Uh, We do half of the the initial part one we do at people's homes and then so we see the animal in their own environment, take the history, go through all the background info there and then they come in within a week um, into our clinic and do the part two with um, which is where then I assess them further. So it gives us a really nice broad um, overview and look, the consults are long but that's predominantly because there's a lot of history um, to to go through and and a lot of education to to catch people up on. Yeah. Is that quite unique? being um, that model that you've established going into the home initially. Uh, I think that makes so much sense. Look, I I have found that um, the reason that it's really working very well is, well, two reasons that's working really well is, um, one, when I originally used to do it, I'd go, I would travel, you know, Byron up to North Brisbane. And by the time I travelled, you know, you can't, it's not... um, practical in the animal world to say to somebody oh well come once a week for an hour like you would in a human mental health um yeah. you know uh, environment um they wouldn't come and uh, distance wise predominantly they, they would they would struggle with time and travel so i kind of felt that you know you had to do the whole consult in one go but because i was well, I am very thorough um, and I go through a lot of the learning theory and body language yep. and all the equipment and plus take the full history which is um, a whole detective a job on its own. Um, and then by the time you talk to them through the mental health and then make recommendations, it would the consult would be four hours. Oh, wow. So, you know, like <laughs> people would just get ex- – like they would love it. They're passionate. They look at the clock, go, how is four hours gone? Do you know? And with yeah. travel, it was taking up a lot of time and, yeah. and I felt that the way that we're doing it now, the benefit is that we um, split it in kind of two, two-and-a-half-hour blocks depending on how long it takes – I also get a behavioural trainer um, who's uh, somebody that's been trained under me um, to understand um, the emotional drive of uh, behaviour, not yep. not dog training, very much chalk and cheese. Yep. Um, and so they go out to do this part one. Um, that also gives the owners an opportunity to meet the behavioural trainer who they will need to use after yep. whatever treatment um, I put play, I put in a treatment program I put in place. Yeah, because it is teamwork. We we need oh, to support yeah. the owners and ongoing help. They need to get ongoing help. Yeah. So most of the time, anyway. Um, wow. So we find that that is a that that is a real benefit in terms of splitting it, so that the time is split. It also gives people the chance to actually process the information and go, oh, over the last week I've seen X, Y, Z. And that actually helps me then be more specific and more tailored to the advice I can give them in terms of management and um, and behavioral therapy or avoidance of, of triggers, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so, yeah, it's I found it's been really, really um, great. Uh, but I do have to say that you really do need a, a qualified and at least um, trained 
by a behaviour vet, a, a behavioural trainer. Yes. Um, and unfortunately, in Australia, um, dog training is an unregulated industry. Yeah. Uh, and there isn't, other than a Cert 4 in Delta, which is an absolute basic course mm-hmm. in um, in understanding animal uh, dog training, should I say, um, positive dog training, um, there is no formal uh, diploma degree for um, uh, people who wish to pursue behavioural training, meaning mm. the, psycho- the the psychologist, the clinical psychologist equivalent yep. in the human world. Yep. So not a counsellor kind of, I've just done the odd course, yeah. um, but a clinical psychologist who's done a degree and understands the, the ins and outs of emotional disorders yeah. uh, and, and supporting both the animal and the pet and the owner, which is the hard part. <laughs> yeah, I know, because it's really the owner, I mean, with, with the help of the trainer, as you said, in the home, but it's really the owner that is that is owning the treatments and oh, we, it's so I, critical I them getting them on board yeah yeah I'm so sorry to interrupt but yeah absolutely I um I, my big thing is is educating them about the principles because I can't live with them you know I don't I don't I can't say do this this five mm. times a day or do this you know this this hour or that hour I don't live with them I can't you know, I'm not the one implementing it, so I have to give them the principles so they can then generalise the information um, and then also support them to be account- – like to make sure that they're accountable to actually stick to the management plan. But yeah. that ha- I find that that happens really easily when owners understand the why. Yeah. And getting yeah. the why is why my consults take so long. Yeah. I build rapport, I educate them. They process things. They ask questions. So, look, having these two um, visits, part one, part two, for the this is for the mental health cases. Okay, so this is for anxiety cases, mm-hmm. um, fear, um, anxiety-based behavioural challenges uh, in dogs and cats. Um, uh, so that model's been working really, really well. I'm really enjoying it. Yeah. No, it sounds. I mean, it's so simple, but it it sounds so different to a lot of the, mm. the other sort of models that are out there. So, so good on you. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> um, so Neela, just on, just sort of expanding on that, obviously you're very passionate about what you're doing and you, you sort of touched on your passion for psychology and psychiatry. Yes. Um, but in terms of what you're, what you're doing now, what sort of cases like really light you up? Like what, what is your, what are your passions oh. in, in <laughs> that world of behavioral medicine? Yeah. Oh, I have to admit that um, more and more what's really sparking my passion is chronic pain and awareness of chronic pain. Um, Look, chronic pain is a disease. Uh, Acute pain is adaptive. Chronic pain is maladaptive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really believe, and this is something that that I echo the voice of um, Dr. Sarah Heath from the UK, um, who has discussed this in her um, one of her conferences I went to that she's found uh, while GP vets want and mean to do the best the environment that the environment that that is the GP practice is not the environment that we can pick up subtle chronic pain mm, um, okay. so what she's found is that uh, um, she's ended up opening a um, chronic pain clinic within her behavior practice all oh, right so um, I'm following her her um, I guess footsteps um, in in doing that I haven't opened an official chronic pain clinic but I I am getting my name out there with a lot of trainers who um, I work with um, uh, some vets. Um, but predominantly trainers who see these pets in their home, they see them walking up and down the stairs, they see the chronic pain, 
or they or they've been educated or, or coached by me to uh, make sure they look for red flags and if sometimes behavioural red flags are so random and they're, you know, um, uh, don't fit any kind of logical pattern despite a thorough history, um, uh, chronic pain is something that I've gotten, that I've educated these these trainers I work with uh, to consider and, and mention to owners. Um, so in those cases, they often come to me that they usually have behaviour problems anyway, so they, yeah. that's why they've gone to the trainer. So they usually come to me for, for a full vet behaviour consult um, but I have found that I can pick up like 0.5 out of 5 type lameness where it's just almost like it's instinctive yeah. Um, yeah. observation where I'm like that dog's favouring or short-stepping with that leg ever so slightly. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, you know, then you get owners to video them in different situations or you put them on a pain relief trial, which is basically the, the, main, the main method of, of ruling these out. Um, or, or, or ruling pain out, um, and the owners are just like, wow, there's like a 50% improvement wow. in their behaviour. In their behaviour. You know, my dog's yeah. now cocking his leg, not 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 kind of squatting, or my mm. dog is um, brighter, he's um, not as reactive, there's no flinching in his muscles over his back. Do you know, all of these kinds of signs, obviously behaviour and anxiety usually is parallel mm-hmm. in these cases. Um, so it's not like the pain treatment you know, removes all behaviour issues, uh, but definitely shows us that pain is playing a big role for this dog or this patient, yeah. this cat, yeah. you know, um, arthritic cats, you know, who um, struggle so um, and who are just not picked up because they're just... Yeah, they like uh, to people, hide it. We, yeah, look, I find... I, I knew, oh, Look, I've only been doing behaviour for, you know, four or five years um, and I know that definitely in the first seven years, at least of my career, I would do the same as, as GP vets I hear still do is you, you know, you mobilize the limb, you go, well, there's no pain, there's no yelping, there's no um, restriction, there's no um, um, mo- range of motion um, uh, change in this, mm-hmm. in these joints, you know, so often that you don't, you don't pick that up because the adrenaline, and this is something that I really try and teach when I go to clinics and I teach vet cl- vets and update the vet staff and teams on on behaviour, is um, you cannot pick up subtle and chronic pain in in the vet environment. The adrenaline is spiked. Yeah, it's going to cause some element of pain relief. Yeah, yeah. Um, so hormones. even if the animal is not mentally unwell in terms of doesn't have a serotonin deficiency genetically, and it isn't an anxious animal, it will naturally be anxious in a, in a veterinary mm. environment. Mm. Yeah. Uh, most of them, unless they're the waggy Labrador tail, yeah. but they're a small percentage, you know. Yeah, um, the white coat syndrome. So, yeah, exactly. So so I think that um, chronic pain should always be diagnosed based on video. So GP vets can easily ask owners, hey, can you video him going up and down the stairs? Mm-hmm. Um, or can you video him, you know, off lead in your home um, or wherever he can walk around so you can actually see the movement? So don't, you know, they don't have to go and do a house call. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're concerned about chronic pain, I would highly recommend doing at least two weeks, but usually a month is ideal of, um, of non-strudals. Should it be yep. safe? Obviously, you're going to take a blood test to make sure that's yep. safe. Yeah. Um, but, you know, and obviously, yeah, Trying to trying to make sure that you're covering all the bases. Oh yeah, gosh, so. well we'll have to have you back again to have a whole episode on that. 
because it I sounds know. really... I know. Dental a... pain's the other one that I didn't mention. Huge issues with dental pain. Yes. That was the other pain yeah. component. So, yeah, look, absolutely. That's a whole other yeah. world, a whole other story. Yeah, yeah. We'll, have, we'll definitely have to book something in. <laughs> but we're, we're, sort of, um, we're, we're sort of almost going to the opposite end of the spectrum, really, because if we're talking about chronic pain, you know, we, we, so, so we do sort of generally think of that in older dogs yeah. not saying that not saying that young dogs can't suffer as well but let's let's brighten up the topic and talk, yeah. start talking about puppies so yeah, I know that fine. this is um something that you really um work hard on in your clinic as well um in, yeah. in sort of getting puppies off on the right foot or the right paw absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. why is this so important um great question and uh there's so many things I'd like to say, but the predominant thing is that we now know behavior is the number one reason for um, euthanasia mm, in yeah. Australia. Yeah, it's really sad. Um, at least in Australia. So what that means is that parvovirus is not the number one killer. Mm-hmm. So if we think about how our um, preventative care and vaccination module and client education module, uh, sorry, not module, um, model Mm -hmm. uh, in the veterinary, standard veterinary GP environment is um, structured at the moment. Um, It's not up to date with current science. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is that vaccination should be done parallel to appropriate safe socialisation. Yeah, I agree. um, So absolutely, um, we need to we we need to make sure that we are educated um, and help and you know hold these these kinds of um, uh, podcasts. Uh, great idea to help get that information out there to more vets to, yeah. for them to start think. For all of us, I didn't think of this when I was in GP practice either. Mm. So it's just that we're not taught about it. Yeah. So I think that um, the more we can become aware of it, um, the the better we can do to prevent. Um, under socialisation before 12 weeks of age, which will then risk uh, having dogs who have genetic components of anxiety predisposition um, then uh, being overwhelmed once they get taken out after 12 weeks of age and Mm. then developing um, coping strategies that that become behaviour problems. Um, And then maybe these dogs might or might not get appropriate help, but usually then about social maturity is when the dog's been trying to cope. This is the typical kind of presentation. They try to cope for the year, year and a half, and then they snap. They either yeah. escape, they cause that the barking, start, separation barking starts to get worse, destruction, um, uh, aggression, uh, aggression displays become more intense. And that's usually when people rehome them or surrender them. And these dogs then either, if they're lucky, find a good home that will then get them treatment. Otherwise, um, they they end up being foster kids, you yeah, know, foster pups. Just passed along. And then eventually yeah. they, they they unfortunately get euthanized because, yeah. the, you know, the, the underlying issue is not being addressed. It's really sad when you put it that way. Um, and I know when I was in practice, there's just so much confusion and controversy about the vaccination and the socialization timing. Um, And there's, you know, there's a lot of talk out there in clients and in vets that, you know, no puppy should be contacting any dog that you don't know personally that's been vaccinated and is up to date and is well until they've had their at least two of three vaccinations. But often the vaccinations aren't started until 
you know, there, there may be the first one six to eight weeks and then there's there's another one that that's four weeks later, but sometimes it's another six weeks later. And so you're really sort of yeah. missing that that, absolutely are. That, um, that period of time where it's so important, like you said, that, you know, before 12 weeks of getting them out there. So how do we sort of overcome this? Is it just, yeah. is it just getting the right education and the right message out there and, beca- look, and sort of trying that, to overcome it? Yeah, great question. So, look, I think that the main thing to remember is the definition of socialisation. Yeah. And I think that we need to start re-educating the public and ourselves and under- to really understand what socialisation means. Um, yeah. So that, in my opinion, the definition of socialization is dogs learning to be calm in the presence of people, dogs, smells, sounds, textures, um, noises, um, every single scent. Yeah. Sorry, sense. Yeah, real life. Okay, <laughs> that they get exposed to. Yeah, socialization is. Um, effectively should be habituation mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, and conditioning if yep. required, yep. positive conditioning pairing, um, uh, rather than desensitization. Right. Okay. Um, so what I mean by that is that the the bra- we should be exposing the young brain to a lot of things gradually and appropriately and safely. Mm-hmm keeping in mind of the type of environment that they're going to live in. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if they are a, a long-haired dog who's going to need grooming, um, socialisation would involve um, exposure gradually uh, and usually passively to uh, to clipper sounds, hair dryer sounds, yeah. you know, the feeling of being brushed. Yeah. This is socialisation. Socialisation is not dog play. Yeah. Dogs know how to play. And this is what I teach all my puppy owners. If a dog feels comfortable, play bowing is natural. Yeah. They 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 will obviously they need to try it out and learn how to use this this communication, but it's not something you need to teach them. Yeah. It's instinctive. Yeah. So if they feel comfortable, they will play. The whole point is we have to make sure the emotional state of the animal is right. Mm-hmm. So that they can feel comfortable to play, then they have a good experience and now we've got to socialise dog to dogs. If we take a dog, a puppy, to a dog park and expect it to be socialised under speech marks, what we're effectively doing is flooding and flooding is extremely emotionally harmful. Um, We overwhelm the senses, so every scent because you've got many dogs or the pheromones on the ground or the outdoor exposure, noises, people, et cetera, being picked up, being restricted, all of this stuff in the car. So many many things happen for a puppy if you're going to take it to a a dog park. And I'm talking even, you know, even after 12 weeks of age, whenever you take it, you know, um, but people take them even earlier, sadly. Um, uh, and, and these dogs get overwhelmed. And in that, in that, if they're in that sensitive period, they go dogs equal scary instead yeah. of dogs equal good. Yeah. So now you've got a permanent pathway in the brain that dogs predict anxiety or fear. Um, and then you have to desensitize or counter condition, mm. which is a lot harder than just making sure that we do the gradual exposure appropriately um, and positively. Yeah. So, um, so I guess, yeah, I think the big thing is like to answer your question is just re, um, reformulating how we explain and educate what socialization is. Yeah. No, I'd actually never thought of it in that way, but it makes perfect sense. It's, it's really, like you said in your words, um, 
getting them to a point where they're they're calm in what their current or future life is going to look like in mm. all aspects of that and yeah all all and all um all senses that are stimulated they need Absolutely. to not just be desensitized to but actually be habituated to and be calm Absolutely. in that and, situation Absolutely absolutely it's so important yeah. and the, the way that um, uh, I guess I'm just going to finish on that topic and just a quick comment as well, I guess a, um, a recommendation that I give to all vets and owners um, with how to do this safely mm-hmm. um, uh, is that from as early as the owners get the puppy, they should be taking it in their arms around their block, feeding them yeah. cooked chicken when they're hungry. Yeah. Um, you know, making sure obviously that the dog's willing to eat, that's important, otherwise you can't condition or make a good emotion if the dog won't eat. So if they're mm-hmm. already overwhelmed, you need to take a step back. Mm-hmm. But if they're willing to eat and you can carry them and they're not, they're not a Great Dane puppy, um, then uh, then by all means, take them around the block. You know, every couple of days, every three days, you don't have to do it every day, um, depending on the resiliency of the puppy and, and kind of your availability. But getting them to hear, you know, the gates screeching, opening, closing, kids playing in the in the street, dogs barking. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take them across the road from a, a school, a children's school, where three o'clock in the afternoon, but you take them, you know, all the way across the road, not like where all the commotion is. And you sit there with them and they can be chewing a chew on a mat or in mm-hmm. your lap. Yeah. Um, uh, just taking that environment in. You could also do the same thing well away and across across the road and well away from a dog park. Yeah. Dogs can smell really well. They can hear very well. If you can just get them so that they've seen it, that they've smelt it, um, that they've heard it, uh, you know, you have a much better chance of making sure that brain has been exposed to that environment that you're going to end up walking your dog around. Yeah. That makes total sense. That's really great advice. So not so. What I say to people is not dog parks, not beaches, and not pet stores. So mm. not high density environment. Of course, not nose to nose with another dog that you don't know is vaccinated. Um, so obviously, I encourage um, interactions with calm dogs of family and friends um, yep. as early as possible. And obviously, I educate owners on how to do this in brief moments, giving both the dogs a break in between um, short sessions, but getting them to to think of socialising them with, with safe dogs, but not unfamiliar dogs Yeah. Um, in terms of ones that they're never going to get to know again, yeah. you know, like on the street or at the parks. Yeah. Um, gosh, I wish I, <laughs> I always say this on this podcast, I wish I had known this when I was in general practice. <laughs> oh, I wish I knew it too. I mean, I used to say, and this is the thing, some, um, you know, that I, I, I want, I guess I want people to keep in mind is that I didn't know any of this. You know, the Delta Cert 4 that I did has taught me more than any veterinary degree, more than the membership preps. Um, uh, it's taught me so much. I think, I personally think that at least the first third of the Delta Cert 4 should be compulsory for mm. all vets to do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if anybody has an interest in behaviour, I would highly recommend to at least do that first because you can do it in – you don't have to complete the whole Cert 4. You can do that in sections because yeah. um, I just found it absolutely invaluable. And, Nila, do you host some sort of puppy preschool or – something like that at your practice? Um, and yeah, how does yeah. that sort of differ from what you've seen of other clinics? Oh. Uh, how, how do you <laughs> oh, run it? <laughs> that, that's, that's a can of worms. Um, <laughs> so, look, uh, absolutely I do. And I actually run them um, as the behaviour vet. I yep. run them. So Great. my clients are very, very lucky because, yeah. I mean, I don't know of another vet. I mean, I don't know. Maybe the vet's in Perth. I'm not sure. But 
again, I'm, I don't know everyone, so I, I could very well be um, uh, not saying the right thing, but I'm not aware of um, many vets that actually run puppy classes. No. Usually their trainers yep. um, do or vet nurses do. Yep. And look, in my, in my opinion, and also in the opinion of, um, you know, our guru and specialist, Dr. Kirsty Sexel, who together with Jess Beer has done a um, five-part series with Royal Cannon on updates on running puppy classes. Mm-hmm. They ran it last year in November. Absolutely every single vet, vet nurse, trainer should be, um, you know, trainer who runs puppy classes should be watching this free um, five-part series. It's on the Royal Cannon um, portal. Uh, so uh, it is so, so important. And I don't think the advertising was out there enough because mm-hmm. there's many people who have who didn't know about yeah, it. No, um, but it's basically Kirsty Sexel explaining why what she recommended when she originally started Puppy puppy preschool 20 years ago, um, why what she used to teach then is no longer what she would recommend now Mm. based on the science that's happened. So um, in her words, and also something that I really, really follow, is that the the most experienced person should be running puppy classes. Yeah. Not the junior nurse who started last week who wants an extra bit of pocket money on a Tuesday night. Yeah. So who reads a reads the the, the four week hills um, puppy you know guidelines? They yeah. are they are not suitable anymore, yeah. um, and they're very outdated in terms of how we should be doing things now. So the primary so the big message is go and watch this this five part series. Um, but the primary way that that what I do differs other than obviously me as the behaviour vet running um, the actual classes is that. Um, um, I focus on um, the emotional development, mm-hmm. not the task orientated development. Yeah. So that is the primary difference. Um, I uh, and and I guess that's the primary principle that I that I follow. Um, how I do that differently is that absolutely I never allow dogs to play off lead. Mm-hmm. Um, until I have assessed each dog appropriately and allowed them to interact through a barrier mm-hmm. first. Okay. So we let. So what I do is I let two puppies at a time um, interact through a barrier. So initially in the first week, it's normally visual barriers. The pups are just getting used to the sights and sounds, chewing, getting massaged, whatever it is they can, depending on what the puppy can succeed in doing in that first session. Um, the second session, um, uh, we may then for short couple of short periods allow interactions. We take the visual barrier off, but the barrier, the, the physical barrier is still there. Mm-hmm. And we allow them just to see and smell each other. Um, and I encourage owners to then, as the puppy looks at the other dog, um, uh, the other puppy, um, I say, feed your puppy. Okay. So what I'm trying to do is get classical conditioning happening. I look at another dog, good things happen. I yep. look at another dog, good things happen. What I found, if I do this over a few weeks, what ends up happening um, is that that puppy then actually, as it sees another dog, looks at the owner first. Okay. Going, Where's my treat? Yeah. And then I can actually get the focus of the dog onto the owner. Yes. But the dog's now feeling comfortable enough with the presence of another dog through a barrier that it can actually take its attention away and look at the owners. And ultimately, that's what the goal is. The goal mm. is that the dog 
can actually focus on the owners and not go into kind of foggy brain, overwhelming emotional states, you know, high arouse, emotional arouse, your cortisol and adrenaline spikes. Trying to avoid those because we need owner, we need dogs to be able to have low arousal so they can listen and learn. And we know that cortisol blocks learning in terms of access to the hippocampus and the cortex. So every time you have a cortisol spike that's significant, you will actually block your cortex, your rational thinking part mm. of the brain, which also part of that is your hippocampus. Yeah. So um, that's why people with animals with chronic stress have poor memories. You can't right. form new memories and you also can't access what you've learned. So there's no yep. point training a puppy to sit, stay, calm down, whatever, if it's in a highly aroused emotional state. Yeah, because they're in that more reactive brain. They're more reactive and then that's when trainers often have to resort to tugging the dog, pushing the Mm. bum down, you know, and, you know, later down the line a puppy might know how to sit at home really well or lie down or come, whatever, at home, but they take it out and about and they haven't generalised that. And then if we haven't educated them on the process of learning and importance of gradual generalisation and all of this and emotional states, they're much more likely to feel frustrated, maybe even embarrassed in the public that their dog's not listening to them. They're much more likely to then resort to um, aversive handling methods, which will work initially because the dog will be scared by the Mm. pain caused or the intimidation tones and body postures used by us as humans when we're in this, when we are in an emotional state of frustration and anxiety. God, you see that all the time. You see that all the time out and about. Oh, you do. And I yeah. just tell people, I'm like, I, I, well, I tell, I educate my owners, <laughs> my puppy owners, that um, their number one responsibility is the emotional welfare of their puppy. Mm. It is not to to appease the public. And to impress people, yeah. Correct. And I said, you, just like you would do, I've got a one-year-old baby, so, you know, like, just the same as you would do with a child mm-hmm. in terms of if you're walking your child in a pram, and some random stranger comes up to and goes, oh, coochie, coochie, coo. Yeah. Do you know, would you not like protect your child and say, no, please don't do that to my child? Yeah. You know, even yeah. if that person started to approach you closely and you don't know them and go, oh, what a beautiful baby. You know, like you're going to go, lovely, see ya. You know, yeah. like you're going to keep walking, <laughs> right? Or if your baby starts to cry and you stop and talk to a friend and your baby starts to cry, you're going to go, look, I'm sorry, baby's distressed, I've got to move on. Yeah. Right. We're going to put our baby first because they're human and we understand human body language. Yeah. And this is the big thing is that we don't instinctively learn and it's something that we have to learn is canine body language. Mm. And it makes how so much dogs sense. express stress. Yeah. Because if we don't notice it, the dog is expressing it. And if we don't notice it and help them, then the dog has to escalate in its expression to communicate with us or communicate its distress or self-protect itself mm. either by lunging, barking or hiding yeah. um, or freezing. Yeah. So they, they are, they're then going to develop behaviour patterns, which then if they work, they become habits. Yeah. So this is where behaviour is a component of genetics, environment and learning. So you've got to have the genetics that shape the, the, the behaviour patterns or the, the inclination for the dog to display certain types, whether it's fear or whether it's hiding or freezing or um, hyperactivity, you know, your, your different kind of introvert, extrovert under speech marks. Yep. Um, uh, but, but then you've got your environment, the environment you set them up in. Do you take them out before 12 weeks or not? You know, how do you expose them? What's the training methods you use? And then how does the dog learn to cope with that? Yeah. And if those coping strategies involve, um, well, those, if it's stress, 
they're going to develop some form of coping strategies, which if the owners, again, don't recognise as a coping strategy that's not constructive, such as chewing. Chewing is a constructive coping strategy. Mm, okay. Chewing a so chewing appropriate things. So like chews, dehydrated, long-lasting chews yeah. is an appropriate coping strategy. Do okay. you know, um, uh, lunging, barking, uh, you know, biting, mouthing is not an appropriate coping strategy. No. Humping. You know, yeah. it's not an appropriate. It's, it's a coping strategy for cortisol. Really, spikes, humping is. Not a, yeah, yeah. It's, ah. it's it's arousal. It's it's emotional arousal. So it's okay. triggered by by cortisol spikes. It's an anxiety sign. Oh, I never knew so, that. Yeah. So I mean, this is the thing. If people don't recognise that all of this stuff is is dogs are expressing it to us, and if mm. we don't educate ourselves, and this is why my puppy classes and what I do different is about really educating owners on this. Yeah. So the other reason that I was just going to say that my puppy class is different, I just remembered, is that absolutely compulsory. They have to do a two and a half hour introduction without their puppy. Right. Okay. So any of our classes, they've got to attend a two and a half hour intro. Now that can be done either as a group in our in our venue, or they can pay a little bit extra and have us come out to their house and do a private kind of puppy setup or, okay. or intro. Yeah. So what we go through that is educating the owners on all of this, body language, problem behaviours, um, how uh, classical conditioning, operant conditioning works in mm. a really simple way, obviously. Yeah. The importance of, of giving dogs an appropriate coping strategy, teaching them that when they're over-aroused, chew a chew. Yeah. You know, go yeah. into your bed and chew a chew. That is an appropriate coping strategy yeah. when you're worried. Yeah. Um, using management and helping the dogs succeed, making sure you set them up for success, not letting a puppy run around nipping people's and kids' clothes and feet mm. and then and then telling them off when that is not fair on the puppy if you're not focused on training it. So if you're not focused on the puppy, it should be behind a barrier and a pen with a chew with enrichment. Yeah. Do you know it, it shouldn't be allowed to run around free reign um unless you're able to focus on it. Yeah. That makes you sense. wouldn't let you wouldn't let a child do that. Yeah. Do you know? And I think that we just need to start generalizing what we would and wouldn't do with children, especially nowadays. That thankfully, in the human world, it's become law that we don't use punishment because we know punishment is emotionally harmful. Mm. Um. Uh. So. So yeah, it, we need to, we need to take a leaf out of the the human book. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many parallels. I have heard it said that training a dog is the equivalent of sort of training um, in quotation marks, marks yeah, a, yeah, um, yeah. a two-year-old child, their, yes. their, their sort of brain capacity and learning ability is quite similar. You're absolutely spot on. So what mm. a number one of the really, really important things that I um, teach owners in this intro is that, or any of my behaviour consults, is that dogs have the cognitive, emotionally, emotional and cognitive capacity of a 18-month-old child. Yeah. We know this scientifically. Yeah. So what that means, and I explained to her, is, is that they cannot have the human equivalent emotional um, processes of guilt, stubbornness, jealousy, spite. They cannot because you cannot explain to them that, that this couch or pillow or whatever or your shoe is valuable to you. Mm. Um, you can't say, well, th that's my grandma's urn. I don't want you to tip that over because that's valuable to me. Because yeah. in a in a in a human adult, human um, sorry, child over two or three years of age, they start to develop the ability to think about what other people think and feel. Yeah. So that's that theory of mind. Dogs yeah. cannot do that. They're not primates. Yeah. 
So, um, but I do tell owners they have exceptional ability for problem solving. Yeah, right. They've really so not emotional, emotional kind of advanced emotional um, processing doesn't mean that they can't problem solve. They're going to problem solve. They're going to say, "What works for me, I do again. What doesn't, I try and avoid." In yep. a really simple way, yeah, um, and it's really broken down. So, um, and then they change several things. Oh well, you know, this predicts this, which predicts this, which predicts this. So therefore, they go, well, you picking up your keys means you're going to leave, and I'm, yeah. don't, I don't have a coping strategy for be feeling uh, being alone. So therefore, my stress response hits, and now I'm trying to anticipate what is going to predict that stress response. Yep. So they start to chain earlier and earlier. Obviously, positive chaining can happen the same way. You know, I'm going for a walk. I see a lead. I know that's going to be a good experience yeah. for me. Yeah. So um, very important that um yeah that that we remember that dogs are permanent 18 month old yeah, brains yeah so we cannot expect that when they're two or three or four years of age that they're going to know under speech that 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 we don't want them doing something because mm. the other big thing is that we put these rules on dogs like don't jump don't chew you know, um, don't bark, don't, you know, um, whatever, don't chase my cat, whatever it is, we put these rules on them. Mm. They, but they're human, like, or, you know, our fences, like we build our fences or glass windows, dogs barking through that or, you know, past a fence, they haven't built that fence. They don't understand what a barrier, like why that barrier is there. Yeah. So all of these things, we have to recognize that they're our rules and we're imposing our expectations and our rules onto dogs that we cannot explain to them that these are the rules. Mm. So therefore, then when they break those rules, such as destruct your shoe or do something that they shouldn't jump on the bench and, you know, pick up food that, yep. you know, that you've accidentally left there, yep. um, they're just doing what dogs do. Yeah, their um, instincts. And, you know, jumping up to lick you or sniff you is because they're used to jump to sniffing each other's faces after bumps, first bumps, then faces, <laughs> to get pheromones, to yeah. get information. How is this interaction going to end for me? Mm. So dogs jumping up at us, we're, 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 we walk on two feet, we're tall. They have to jump to get to our faces. Mm. So, you know, all of these behaviours are completely normal behaviours for dogs, which obviously can become, become behaviour problems. Yeah. Um, uh, but... Um, we, I try and remind owners that we are imposing these rules on them and they don't understand the rules Yeah. because we cannot verbally express it to them. Yeah. So what's important is to think about, have I taught my dog what to do instead in this environment? Mm. So this is what I teach my owners is stop and think. You're a primate. You've got opposable thumbs. You've got a frontal cortex that's very well developed. Stop and think. Don't mm. react. Mm. Just because you don't like your dog doing that, jumping on the couch or whatever. Do you know, like if you've got a leather couch and it's a hot day, well, it's cooling. Unless yeah. you've got your dog a cooling mat or another leather couch that it's allowed to go on, I think it's totally reasonable that a dog jumps up on the couch. Mm. I think that we have to be realistic um, about our expectations of what dogs can understand. And um, you sort of touched on some of the common issues that we see in puppies who don't have the best start, like you're mm -hmm. describing. 
being, you know, lack of that sort of emotional um, development and emotional um, intelligence Focus. and yeah. and learning um, sort of coping strategies rather than being calm and habituated to environments. So would you say mm. they're the most common issues that you see in puppies that haven't had the best start or, or what other things sort of are oh, popping up? Yeah, look, the biggest one that I see is um, from the um, – all the puppy classes that are run by outdated methods. And when I say outdated, it means not focusing on the emotional development yeah. um, and emotional safety. And what I'm, what that looks like practically is all the puppy classes that are run where dogs are let off lead to play. Yeah, sure. Or dogs are allowed to meet and greet on lead. Yes. Or you might have, there's some puppy classes where people want to do better things. So they get two puppies to play while the other puppies, sadly, are not educated. The owners are not instructed to actually lift the other puppies that are not playing off the ground and turn them away mm-hmm. when the other dogs come nearby. Because mm-hmm. the issue is you're, the people who are, not, who are with the puppy who's not currently off lead and playing um, is on a lead. Mm. While there's other two puppies playing, maybe even the other two puppies come up to it and it's on a lead. Mm. What does leads, what do leads remove from a dog? Well, their freedom. <laughs> choice, exactly. Yeah. Freedom and choice. Yeah. So what is so when you remove somebody's freedom and choice, you're A going to increase their anxiety, but B, you're going to increase frustration. Mm. Is that why you see what I've seen is that dogs are more likely to display aggressive behavior when they're on a lead sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because yeah. they learn that leads remove their ability to either leave the situation yeah. or interact if it's a positive, if they yeah. want to interact. And so back on to the, the question that you had about, mm. um, you know, what's the most common kind of behaviour challenge that I find in puppies who aren't appropriately, um, uh, have don't have the best exposures in their first mm-hmm. um, puppy class experiences, is that because of these environments, they develop one of two problems. They either develop on-lead frustration or mm-hmm. on-lead reactivity, and that's to do with whether or not they're um, in a positive or negative emotional state um, when they're interacting with another dog on-lead. Um, uh, but the other big thing is that they get conditioned mm. that dogs equal hyperactivity. Yeah. So every time there's dogs, I play. Yeah, okay. So they're not learning to be calm, to be calm. in the presence yeah. of other dogs. Yeah. So therefore then these people, these poor owners, have an extreme difficulty when you when they take their when they start taking their dog on lead for a walk and their dog has been conditioned in their sensitive period that dogs equal hyperactivity or play or interactions. So they see another dog either approach them or cross or across the road from them and they pull towards it. Mm. You know, so as long as they haven't had a fearful experience and aren't already fearful of dogs, they're generally going to want to pull to interact, to explore. But what's going to happen? They're going to feel tension and pressure on their neck. They might even feel pain if people are using choker chains or actually physically tugging their dogs. Yeah. Um, And even, you know, people who use back-attached harnesses, these harnesses spread the pressure of the lead Mm. over a wider surface area, therefore generating more desire to pull more um, the opposition reflex, triggering the opposition reflex. I mean, sled dogs have back-attached harnesses for a reason. You know, back-attached harnesses should not be used for walking, mm-hmm. not for teaching walking. You okay. know, once your dog has learned how to walk and you want to just chill out, fair enough, put it on a back-attached. They should be on a front-attached harness right, or a flat okay. collar. That's good advice. So, um, and it needs to be fitted right. The front-attached harness needs to be fitted right for it to work. So yep. um, uh, basically, um, you know, I find that, 
if puppy classes are not run right with regards to teaching dogs to be calm in the presence of other dogs, which is ultimately what we want to do in that environment. Mm-hmm. Because people can do so- other socialization um, aspects in many other environments. What we are recreating in a puppy class environment is a safe, it should be safe, calm exposure to dogs. So if that doesn't happen, I really feel that we set owners up to fail. Yeah. Um, and we risk the dogs then developing um, learning or developing behavior patterns, coping strategies for when they're hyperactive, frustrated, anxious on walks. Um, people get frustrated, they pull back. So now the dog escalates and now the dog starts to anticipate these these emotional states out in walks. So if you repeat that over six months, over a year, of course, then by 15 months of age, you're going to have a dog who's if it's also got an anxiety predisposition, is going to be out of control. Mm. Do you know, and they might start lunging, barking. And sometimes it's high-pitched barking, which is the frustration, or low-pitched barking, which is fear, um, uh, you know, as a generalisation. Um, so, yeah, I really think that what what I do differently is that I, obviously, other than doing the intro and educating the owners on everything, in my classes, they have to bring chews. And if they don't, I supply them with an initial sample for their dogs to try and then they need to purchase some. So they have to come with a variety of chews. And I'm talking dehydrated, healthy chews, not raw hides, not the bleached stuff. Um, They can have Kongs stuffed with food. I don't care what they bring. They can have a toy if that helps their puppy, um, but preferably food that the dog can sit and chew. So these are your root tendons, your root kneecaps, fully sticks, you know, um, preferably not pork products. They're quite fatty Mm -hmm. um, and hard on the tummy, but, you know, lamb ears, um, beef ears. There is so many options. Mm-hmm. There's um, deer antlers, goat horns. We have we have an abundance of chewable options these days in terms of animal byproducts. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, people need to have that supply, A, because um, they need it at home anyway, so we're educating them how to use it. But B, in puppy class, we do a session. Then we, while I'm talking and explaining the next one, the pups are busy chewing. Yeah. So they're getting classically conditioned to my presence. Yeah. And to the but other But they're also puppies. getting gradually as as through because my puppy class, so the other thing is they're eight weeks, they were eight to nine weeks long. Yeah. Um, or eight weeks okay. plus the intro. So it's about so, double normal. Yeah, exactly. Because I want to be there for their whole developmental period. Yeah. I don't want them to have to stop and go, oh, should I or shouldn't I come to the next program? Yeah. Um, I want to be there through the, you know, up to, you know, 16, 20 weeks of age when, when yeah. these puppies are going to start developing behaviour problems usually. Yeah. That's usually when the barking and the, the you know, um, other behaviours, jumping starts to become more more obvious. Yeah. Um, so, uh, um, and separation issues and separate independence training and all of this stuff, you know, getting them to discussing with them about all the video footage that they take because it's absolutely compulsory that they have a video camera that monitors the dog's home alone. Like mm, that's okay. not an option for me. And if people don't do that, um, I, I'd give them a stern lecture um, <laughs> okay. of why it's important Yeah. Um, yep. uh, because they can't adjust management for the dog at home and help they them don't cope and on. be aware of whether or not their dog's got issues if they don't video. Yeah, that um, makes sense. And, uh, I mean, all dog owners should be videoing their dogs at home alone, at least initially, to make sure they're okay. Mm. Um, uh, so I, that, that was a sidetrack. I'm sorry. So, um, <laughs> okay. so basically what, <laughs> what I do is I make sure the dogs are chewing and then over time what happens is over my eight weeks I remove the visual barriers for longer and longer periods. I then remove the physical barriers. Okay. So effectively then you've got two dogs, you know, three metres apart 
chilling out, chewing a chew. Yep. Those are well socialized dogs. Yep. Yep. Do you know, obviously in between that I have appropriate interactions should that be appropriate. Um, over the eight weeks we build on the two dogs playing um, and it's short periods. And I educate owners that and I show, while, they're, while their interactions between two dogs is happening, um, I'm not teaching anything else. I'm describing and narrating body language. Yep. So that way the owners start to actually start watching for the body language signs, whether it's their dog or the other dog, because they have to be aware it's not just about their dog. It's a two-way street. Mm. So if their dog is being under speech marks a bully or hyperactive and and just chasing another puppy, that is not okay because Mm. that dog is now learning that it's okay to do that. Mm. The other dog is not having a good experience because it's being chased and cornered under a chair. Yeah. If the coach who's standing at the front teaching is busy, distracted, teaching about flea treatment and worming, and whatever else, we're talking about how to train a sit while this is happening, um, that one puppy that got hidden has now been emotionally traumatised. The puppy who's chased has become, has learned that that is an appropriate interaction with dogs. Mm. And what's worst, if, if that chasing dog is allowed to um, continue doing that, the one that's cornered might growl or snarl. Yeah. And it can that be missed. dog that's yeah. chased has now may now back off, but what have they learned? They've learned that it's okay to that it's appropriate to that the stop signal for play or for their behaviour is a growl or snarl. Yeah. yeah. So, and this is a big issue that happens with people who have older dogs and puppies. Yes. They do not, and unfortunately, many people don't recognise the importance of never leaving your puppy unsupervised with an older dog ever. Right, okay. Because it's not fair on the older dog who's going to have to, it's not about the older dog teaching it because the older dog having to growl or snarl means that that older dog is really stressed. Yeah. It's in red zone. Yeah. Okay, so it might not snap yet, but in three months it might yeah. because that puppy's not going away. Yeah. The other thing that's not not happening, that, that well, that's happening that shouldn't be happening is that that puppy it's, is now learning how to interact with older dogs inappropriately. Yep. It's learning to push older dogs and annoy and hang off their lips and, you know, and, and then unfortunately if that continues, a growl and a snarl from the puppy will be perceived as an interaction mm. that's not a stop signal. might initially be a stop signal because it is punishment, right, but if the puppy's motivation to continue playing or interacting with this other dog is greater than the punisher that the other dog is offering, it's going to continue doing the behaviour, which is going to mean that the other dog has to escalate its aggressive yep. displays to defend itself, yep. which then might end up in problems. And that's typically the biggest issue I see is two staffy fam- families. You know, your, your two-year-old and a puppy that are yeah. both staffies, I invariably end up seeing them at, um, you know, four when the, when the older dog is four and the puppy is two. Yeah. Because by two years down the line, they've they've started, they've both now been barking at the territory boundary and now one of them has become more anxious or frustrated and redirects to the other dog. And now yeah. we've got into dog aggression. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Staffies is a, you know, it, it's it's a bigger risk, but it can happen in absolutely any breed. Yeah. Any breed. So, and it doesn't have to be two of the same breed or same sex. Yeah. I remember um, when I was in practice, two bulldogs, British bulldogs, just, I, I think, the time I was there over two years came in for about six different surgeries yeah, because I mean, they by the had time just they, gone at each yeah. other. Yeah, it was really by sad. By the time they've actually caused wounds, 
it, they're so sensitised to each other, they have no inhibition. Because mm. dogs do not bite as the primary way of communicating. Mm. They use pheromones, facial expressions, body language. Yeah. You know, like they only turn to snarling, growling and then biting if the other behaviours, the other ways of communicating aren't effective. Mm. So by the time they've actually caused wounds, not just snapped, like it's extremely yeah. serious of how they, how much these two dogs have now sensitised to each other. It means that what sensitization in this situation means, and this is a whole other talk about interdog aggression, but it means that you no longer need the trigger on the other side mm. of the fence mm. or the door or the window. Now the two dogs have become predictors for stress for each other. Yeah. So, you know, you no longer need that bone that's yeah. originally triggered the 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 fight. Yeah. Um yeah. and and these are really sad cases. Yeah. Really sad cases. Yeah, and they are. the biggest thing that I can say to to, to vets, I think if and nurses, if you ever see these cases, the number one thing you need to educate these owners on is that this will get worse if you don't permanently separate your dogs until you get them addressed behaviorally. Yeah. Like they have to be permanently separated. Yeah. And people don't like hearing no, that. No, they don't. Why, which is why in puppy vaccinations, in general vaccinations, if somebody has a household with two dogs, I will always ask, have you videoed the two dogs home alone? Mm. Because people won't know that the two dogs are barking at the territory boundary and starting to escalate. Yep. Until the bites happen, yeah. yeah. So you know, yeah, there's there's a lot of a lot of stuff that that um, I think we can preempt uh, behaviorally, but education is needed, and and whether it's for the owners or for the vets, the staff, the nursing staff. Um, it's just a huge gap in our in our education system. Yeah, well, let's hope that um, people like you and um, you know education like the podcast and and other key um, key vets in the field that you've mentioned can start to overcome some of these gaps because, yeah. um, like you said, you know it's it's just such a it's more common than not to see these sort of things happening out there in the world, and um, you know it it is it, it is a real issue um, given that the euthanasia rate like you said, is highest um, yeah, for no, behaviour cases. So Absolutely. I, one other yeah. thing that I um, that I just wanted to mention I think is really useful to consider for all of us, whether our pet owners or, or nurses or vets, is to remember that, um, you know, dog genetics have not caught up with urbanised lifestyle. No. We are not selecting dogs for ability, genetically, consciously, um, uh, objectively selecting genetics to cope we're not not there are some traits some breeders that are doing this but it's far and few between that are selecting genetics for the dog's ability to cope in urbanized environments yeah so many dogs are bred on farms yeah you know, not not talking about puppy farms but they're bred on large properties or, yeah. or properties um uh so if you get a puppy from a property that has never heard or seen for the first eight weeks of its life um, the environment that you're going to bring it in, and then you keep it inside for the next four weeks. I mean, how is that puppy's brain going to ever have the opportunity to actually get accustomed to your lifestyle and your environment? Mm. So them developing behaviour problems um, is is really, um, really high risk. Mm -hmm. And obviously the other big high risk at the moment, and I think something we've got to think about, and I think more research is needed in this area, I recall, but I cannot um, be 100% sure that there is either a research paper or an anecdotal um, uh, report, uh, um, which I agree with, I, from my experience agree with, is that it seems that the more we shrink breeds, 
So we go from the mm. standard poodles to the miniatures and then, you know, from the terriers, the, 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 um, uh, um, uh, the terriers and we shrink them down to the mini teacup chihuahuas. Um, you know, like the more we seem to be shrinking dogs, we, I think, are selecting for more neuroticism mm. in, a, in a polite way. Yeah. More reactivity, more hyper uh, hyper arousal, more yeah. noise sensitivity. Um, uh, and the other issue is that obviously handling these little dogs means that we restrict their movement and we don't if we don't recognize their body language, they have no choice. So therefore they learn to need to need to learn to defend themselves quicker so they can develop behavior issues mm. um, more rapidly. Point. So so I think that, that we need to consider the fact that we have to go easy on these dogs and that, you know, if they do have anxiety, just like in the human urbanised population, a large proportion of people need anxiety support yep. medically because of the, the speed of, of, of life that we're living in now and the density of, of um, urbanised environments and the high expectations um, and, the you know, all of this stuff, I think, increases our anxiety we're not out in farms you know picking berries chilling yeah. out having a cups of tea yeah um uh so i think that we have to be conscious that if dogs puppies especially puppies are displaying progressive declining behavior issues mm-hmm. um treat them early address yeah. it early educate yeah. owners early before this becomes a habit and the behavior coping strategies become worse yeah um try and kind of nip it in the bud refer if you're not sure um contact behavior vets or specialists for advice to discuss cases i mean i'm always happy to chat to vets um nurses and and give some advice to say hey have you asked this have you asked that so um consider this so yeah i think yeah there's a lot that we can preempt do preemptively to to reduce that euthanasia rate and rehoming rate yeah absolutely that's that's the goal of it all isn't it Absolutely. At the end of the day, yeah, absolutely. We just want dogs to stay with their and their families to get the benefit. You know that the human animal bond is yeah. so medically proven to be so beneficial. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and we know that, but not if the animals displaying behaviour patterns that no. are, um, you know, causing the owner stress. Gosh, Neela, we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but we um we're pretty much out of time. And I know that you've no probably problem. got to get into your day and start consulting. Thank you yes. so much. You've just been a wealth of knowledge and I can really feel the passion that you have um, for behavior and for pet psychology and human psychology really coming through the phone. So I've really yeah. enjoyed chatting to you. I've learned a lot no and I know that the episode will um, be very, very popular and I hope that many vets listen to it as well yeah. and um well, thank you again yeah, no thank you thank for organizing you. this and and the initiative oh no that's a pleasure um hey nila just before we go are you able to leave us with where people can find you and your yeah. clinic calm companions yeah absolutely so just www.calmcompanions.com.au yeah um that's what all our contact details i've also got a links page um with on the resources section there that has a lot of information Beautiful. um that that people can uh, can access uh so uh, by all means, reach out. There's a contact page on there. Our email is info at calmcompanions.com.au. Amazing. Phone number is um, the 1-800-DOCTOR-NELLA. So N-E-L-A-1-L. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Well, thank awesome. you again. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. This is the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you enjoyed today's episode, please feel free to jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.